This week in KMA Land, many ice storm causes KMA Land power outages. Summit Carbon Solutions defends pipeline safety. Mills County seeks Pottawatomie County's legal help. A new Mills County Public Health Administrator is hired. And the Glenwood School Board hires elementary project architect. Hi, Mike Peterson. You knew conditions were bad Tuesday when power lines galloped. Freezing precipitation combined with high winds caused calamity for KMA Land Electrical Services Tuesday. Thousands of mid-American energy customers in southwest Iowa and southeast Nebraska residents covered by Omaha Public Power District lost power for several hours. About 13,500 mid-American customers were without electricity at the peak of the outages. Mid-American Energy spokesman Jeff Greenwood told KMA News a galloping effect with the power lines caused most of the outages. When there's freezing rain or rain that freezes on overhead power lines, it sort of changes the air pattern uh, as winds blow onto the lines or blow through the lines. And the, the lines start to bounce a little bit. They move and then they start to bounce and bounce even more and bounce even more. And that's what we call galloping. And that's when we experience outages. Greenwood says about 4,000 customers in Shenandoah alone lost power. He says the outages were off and on in some instances. We had several outages that were only a few minutes in duration. So it may be three, four, five minutes at a time that power went out and then back on again. This was largely due to galloping overhead lines. We had crews in the area who could observe the galloping going on and they could see what was happening but when that starts to occur, there's not a lot they can do until the wind starts to subside. He adds the weather caused problems for Mid-American's entire system, not just the power lines. There is an area not in Shenandoah where the combination of the wind and the freezing rain actually broke an overhead line, or broke an overhead pole, rather, a transmission pole, and that will have to be repaired. In other cases, uh, a line's insulator may have broken, and in yet other cases, there's nothing broken. It's just that the galloping caused a circuit interruption, and then uh, it stopped, and then the circuit uh, restored itself, and customers were back on. Based on information from Mid-American Energy, Mills County Emergency Management Coordinator Gabe Barney says roughly 10% of the county's residents lost power late Tuesday morning, early Wednesday afternoon. Kind of big hits. It seemed like a little bit further uh, east of here, a little bit of in Glenwood. Um, they had to let out a couple of schools early just because they didn't have power, so that added to it. And then, you know, city got buses on the roads going when it's a little bit icy out and everything, too. So it's been a little bit dangerous conditions for here. Barney says the precipitation started as a light rain, which then froze as the temperature dropped through the day. After, you know, the first light rain initially freeze, we started seeing a little bit more freezing rain and sleet that did some buildup. Uh, so that's why we're thinking a lot of where those power outages are coming from, possibly getting some weight on the power lines, um, from our guesses at least. Uh, most power was restored to most Mills County customers by 2 in the afternoon. By that same time, power is back to almost all Montgomery County residents. Montgomery County Emergency Management Coordinator Brian Hammond says Tuesday's weather is a good reminder to prepare for outages with other future weather events. Winter is upon us. Snow will be on the ground before too long. Hopefully we can get some moisture, but uh, just a good refresher to everyone to keep in the back of their mind when weather happens, you know, be prepared, have extra batteries, blankets, candles, whatever it may be to get you through um, any and all power outages or anything that occurs. 
And after the cold spell, by the end of the week, temperatures were back up into the 50s. Proponents of a proposed carbon dioxide pipeline are attempting to address safety concerns associated with the project. During its regular meeting this week, the Page County Board of Supervisors received an update from Kaylee Langrill of Turnkey Logistics, who is handling the majority of non-environmental permitting with Summit Carbon Solutions on its proposed Midwest Express CO2 pipeline. Langworth says just over 55% of the land has been secured through voluntary easements in Page County, just under four of the seven miles planned for the county. Langrill attempted to address the often-discussed safety concerns of the project. She claims the project is well-regulated through the Pipeline Hazardous Material Safety Association, or PHMSA, with Summit even going above and beyond in some regards. PHMSA does require that we um, x-ray 10% of the wells on our project. Summit Carbon Solutions has made the commitment to x-ray 100% of the wells on this project line. Another thing, uh, the pipeline will be hydrostatically tested. So this is something that we're regulated to do as well. Now, uh, requires filling the line up with water 125% or more of its max operating pressure. And this will be done for four to eight hours, depending on the pipe size and where it's located. Langer also says Summit is exceeding PHMSA's setback requirement of 50 feet, estimating that as of now, no setbacks are projected to be less than 100 feet, which are often negotiated with the landowner. Opponents of the project have often pointed to a lack of adequate knowledge and training for emergency responders in the aftermath of a carbon dioxide pipeline rupture in Mississippi in 2020. However, Langrill says they're already working with impacting emergency management agencies and training will be provided. There will be trainings with our staff and the county uh, emergency response, you know, ahead of time. So if there is any kind of problem with the line, like any kind of leak or anything like that, these people would know each other. They will have worked with each other before and this will not be something. That's chaotic and new. also claims Summit has attempted to avoid a pipeline path that cuts through the middle of a landowner's field. The way Summit Carbon Solutions did it, and this is part of us being an act-based company, is they tried to stay as close to the property line as possible, but we weren't just cutting straight through people's fields. So stay as close to the, prop- to the property line as possible, and then once these negotiations start, if the landowner wants to move it, we can do that. However, she adds the proposal is a starting point that could be negotiated with landowners. Page County is also one of several that have filed a letter to the Iowa Utilities Board, the board governing hazardous liquid pipelines, stating their opposition to the use of eminent domain for the project. Supervisor Jacob Holmes pressed Langrell on whether she believed the eminent domain should be used for the project. Langrell replied that Summit intends to use the land seizure process as little as possible. For a project this size, I would say, but our hope is that the only time we would have to use eminent domain is when there is some kind of title issue. So if there's a title issue, you know, and we don't know who has the legal claims to the land, we could have every single person that could possibly have a claim to that land sign an easement, and it's not valid. So that's when we would have to use eminent domain, and that's why it's necessary. Um, We don't want to use it just because we can't come to an agreement with people. Earlier this month, Summit officials stated they had secured over 50% of required easements project-wide. However, they're currently awaiting a ruling from the IUB. Langrill says they hope for approval by next summer with construction of the project to begin around August 2023 and be operational within the following year. In addition, Page County officials briefly discussed the possibility of an ordinance regulating carbon pipelines similar to regulations recently passed in Shelby County. 
County and discussed in Montgomery County. As Mills County is still without a county attorney, it's turning to a neighboring county for help. At its regular meeting Tuesday morning, the Mills County Board of Supervisors authorized the Pottawatomie County Attorney's Office to assist Mills County, which has been without a county attorney since Nita Elliott's resignation earlier this month. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Wednesday morning, Supervisor Richard Crouch says Assistant County Attorney Paul Ryan has covered the office in the county attorney's absence. But help is necessary. We have some other issues that we need to be covered, and he's got so many caseloads. You know, he says, I, I just can't get this done and stuff. So I had made arrangements and talked with Matt Wilbur of Hot County. He needed a letter of recommendation from our attorney down here. We got that. Everybody uh, looked at it, signed off on it. So now we have uh, help from Hot County coming to Mills County as we need it. Crouch says the agreement with Pottawatomie County Attorney Matt Wilbur includes payment for mileage between the two counties. We're very pleased. Pot County has been very good to us. They have come down and helped us before and when we've had in-between county lawyers and things. So uh, we're very pleased that Matt Wilbur of the Pot County Attorney Office you know, has, has stepped up and says, no, we'll come down and help you out. Meanwhile, the county continues to search for a new county attorney. Despite her resignation, Elliott was the top vote-getter for the county attorney's position in the November 18th general elections. Crouch's applications remain on the county's website, and more discussion on the position is expected at future supervisors' meetings until it's filled. We'll put it on every week probably and discuss it if we have new applicants or when we're just going to pull the trigger and say, okay, enough's enough. We're, we're going to interview and and uh, go from there. And for the second time this year, Mills County has a new public health administrator. At that same meeting, the supervisors approved the selection of Kieran and Scott to fill the vacancy left by Lori Ann Gentry's termination back in September. Gentry had succeeded Julie Lines, who retired as the county's public health administrator back in May. County public health nurse Lori Griner has been serving as the county's interim public health administrator. Griner told KMA News Scott was selected from four other applicants for the position. Kenan has experience in the nonprofit world. She also has experience in administrating a large budget. So we're excited for those two things. She has experience in um, being in charge of an office and in charge of people. Scott's tenure begins Monday. Griner hopes Scott brings some stability to the public health department. I just think that when she comes in, she'll be able to be kind of a settling factor for our office. We've kind of been in turmoil for several months, and it's just time to, to kind of settle in and all of us do what we're supposed to do. Supervisor Richard Crouch serves as the Board of Supervisors liaison to the county's Board of Health. Crouch said he was pleased with the Board of Health for their work in filling the vacancy, as well as Scott for her commitment to taking the job. Glenwood school officials are exploring various options for future elementary school projects. By unanimous vote Monday evening, the Glenwood School Board commissioned Clark and Anderson of Lincoln for pre-bond and post-bond programming, conceptual design, and construction of the district's final phase of its long-range facilities plant. Glenwood School Superintendent Dr. Devin Embray told KMA News the last phase called for renovation and classroom additions to Northeast Elementary School, renovation of a building on the Glenwood Resource Center campus for an elementary facility, and or modification to West Elementary School for other purposes. Embrace says the district's exact course of action has yet to be determined. Now that we have our architects on board, we'll be doing the programming piece, the planning piece, the research and the estimating of, of the cost for the, for the total project, and then we'll come out with a proposal plan for that. Looking to go to vote 
sometime in March of 24. Embry says the district awaits the state's decision on the future of the GRC campus once its center closes its doors in 2024. We're trying to work with HDR, who was hired by the state to do the feasibility study and the master overlay of the GRC campus, but we're trying to fast-track their decision on whether we would be a good fit for the Myers building that's up on the campus uh, for a West remodel. So we're waiting on that. They have uh, given us all indications that they're going to make that decision fairly early so that we would be uh, able to continue planning. Embry says Northeast Elementary is an antiquated facility that must be upgraded to meet modern education standards. While saying West Elementary is an older building, the superintendent says it could be repurposed for other uses. We did a, a major renovation of West Elementary in 1999-2000 and it's it's actually our second most energy efficient building in the in the district so it's uh, really it's got great bones and it's got a great structure to it so we would if we don't have West Elementary in it we would love to repurpose it uh, to still utilize the building uh, for all of our ancillary services so that that's the reason we would be looking at, at repurposing West. Alembre acknowledges it's full speed ahead of the district's facilities. He adds the district needs contingencies in case state officials decide the Myers building would not lend itself to the school district's elementary needs. Stanton School District is another KMA land district looking at the big picture in terms of facilities. Members of the district's strategic planning committee met for the first time this week. Comprised of 10 members, including staff, school board, and community representatives, the committee is charged with formulating a plan to meet the district's building needs and wants. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Tuesday morning, Stanton School Superintendent David Goote says the district has done a good job of keeping up its facilities in the past such as installing an elevator, for example. But he says there are other areas that must be addressed. We've done a lot of things. Um, we have a few more needs that the school board's wanting to address in the very near future as updates to our science lab classroom and trying to find a better space for our uh, ever-growing STEM program and, and the kind of a challenges that they face of setting things up and having to tear them back down from a face standpoint. In addition, Goots says Stanton is participating in a vulnerability study made available to each district through Iowa Homeland Security and Emergency Management. Every school district is working on this with Iowa Homeland Security setting up a time. So they'll be coming in December and uh, addressing our school security uh, safety and then they'll give us a written report on maybe some uh, suggestions. They're not mandates in this report, from what I understand, but some suggestions on trying to do some of those improvements. So there's lots of moving things that uh, this committee will have to look at and, and hopefully try to address. Good is also superintendent of the Fremont Mills School District, which is also undergoing a similar review under the initiative announced by Governor Kim Reynolds last summer in response to the deadly school massacre in Uvalde, Texas. There's some grant money opportunities out there in the you signed up for the assessment, then there's a $50,000 grant that comes with that. And, and then things that are in your report, you can use that grant money to help address those those items. Good says Stanton's board is not interested in a bond issue referendum to address building needs. He says both physical planting equipment levy and securing advanced vision for education or safe funding is available for future projects. You can hear the full interview with David Gooch with the web story at kmaland.com as well as on our Morning Line page. Red Oak school officials are locking in rates for natural gas usage for the next school year. Meeting in regular session Monday night, the Red Oak School Board approved a participation 
Transportation Agreement with the Iowa Local Government Risk Pool Natural Gas Program for the 2022-23 school year. Speaking on KMA 705 Newscast Tuesday morning, Red Oak School Superintendent Ron Lorenz says the agreement allows the district to avoid the majority of the risk associated with a volatile natural gas market. And it allows us to contract for natural gas for the entire year and defer, uh, defer the, the risks that are associated with just market volatility, rising prices. We defer those to a third-party provider, so we have a much greater budget certainty uh, and peace of mind that comes with that, basically. The Iowa Local Government Risk Pool is a 28E agreement founded in 2019 by K-12 public school districts to provide more stability to school district budgets by pooling risks. School districts pay a single premium at the start of the fiscal year to cover all natural gas services for the year. Lorenz says the agreement is typically reviewed and renewed in the early spring. However, the school wanted to capitalize on the current pricing due to anticipated rising energy costs. Demand is increasing, particularly in Europe, and prices have been following. So last summer, uh, in August, natural gas prices approached $10 a unit. But then they fell in November to just around $6. Now the commodity brokers are anticipating another increase, so we wanted to make sure that we locked in those prices. However, the superintendent adds the cost is still a rather significant increase from the current school year. This year we paid uh, just under $60,000, and we're looking at just over $100,000 next year. So it's it's a significant increase, but like I said, this I think this is the best price we're going to get, so we wanted to jump on it. In other business, the board approved an SBRC application for open enrollment in the current year that was not included in the certified enrollment for the prior year of just over $144,000. Supporters of an affordable housing project in Red Oak are optimistic an alternative tax credit program could knock out a chunk of the funding needed to wrap up the renovation efforts. That's according to Builders Development Corporation Executive Director Chell Thornton, who tells KMA News her group is currently seeking a 4% low-income housing tax credit to financially support their ongoing renovation of the old Red Oak Middle School into a 25-unit apartment building. The project to renovate the building and the old gym and auditorium has been ongoing since mid-2020. Thornton says they have submitted their application for the tax credits, but are waiting to hear back on the official word. We have fulfilled what they called their deficiency report, and as of this morning, they told me they would meet on the 8th of December and then finalize the application and then send it up to the people that make the decision, and they didn't have a timeline on how long that would take, but they didn't think it'd be weeks, so I'm hoping to hear something back in the next couple weeks. The LINETECH program gives state and local allocating agencies the equivalent of roughly $8 billion in annual budget authority to issue tax credits for the acquisition, rehabilitation, or new construction of rental housing targeted to lower-income households. Thornton adds the application also includes historic tax credits. However, she says the LITEC application would be just one of the funding sources to wrap up the nearly $10 million project. Some of it's the LITEC credit. Some of it will be loans from the bank, and, you know, some of it will come from from Builders Development Corporation. So um, it just comes from different sources. And we're also working on other avenues to get more sourcing on some grants and different things. But until we know for sure... 
um, we're going to get approved on the application, we really can't pursue any other revenue. Previous tax credits for the project had to be returned due to an October 31st completion date. She says the COVID-19 pandemic was a significant factor in the project's delays since its onset. There was problems with, you know, uh, getting people in the building, uh, making sure everybody was safe, you know, to work, and so you couldn't work a lot of people together. So it just ran behind schedule. Um, The contractor at the time was having issues with um, keeping help, and and they got behind, too, because they had other projects that were then being pushed behind because of COVID. So then they, you know, projects that were supposed to be done were not done, and so they just got overwhelmed. Earlier this year, Merritt Construction Company of Cedar Rapids was selected as the new contractor for the project, as of now, Thornton says the multi-story project is roughly 50% complete. Iowa hunters will be out in full force the next two weekends looking to bag some antlered creatures. Iowa shotgun deer season kicks off this weekend with the first season running from today through the 7th and shotgun 2 from December 10th to the 18th. Speaking on the morning show recently, Tyler Harms with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources says they expect nearly 100,000 hunters to make their way into the timbers throughout what he says is often a tradition for the state's outdoor enthusiasts. Shotguns are pretty a pretty common uh, firearm that folks have um, in the in the arsenal, so to speak. It's something that you can use for uh, for other types of hunting in in the state, and so uh, so I think it's a really accessible way for individuals to get out into the field and harvest one of our deer. With the often large turnout of hunters, Harms adds nearly half of the statewide annual deer harvest also occurs during the two seasons. He says the state's deer population has ranged between steady and slightly increasing throughout the year. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com, where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.